We recorded this on Zoom, so there are some small sound quality issues that we've tried to overcome. But most of it's okay. Also, if you get a chance, check out our new YouTube channel for The Impossible Network, where we'll be posting some of the videos that we're now making. And while we're in lockdown, we're going to start some shorter 15-minute interviews on more topical, relevant COVID-19-related subjects. Let us know if there's anyone you want us to interview. Just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram. This notion of having fun, I think it's been been so important and integral to who I am because, you know, you, you do, you go through childhood and most people get their childlike wonder and curiosity and risk-taking behavior completely squelched and and stomped out of them by the time they're like 11. And then we we grow up and we start reading magazines and listening to TED Talks that basically reorient us and say what we should have been doing is finding something that we're that we love to do. Right? So then we're fed this like find something you love to do, find something where when you're doing it time is passing. Time should be flying by when you're doing what you love. And hopefully if you can find something that you get paid to do where time flies by. So this is all wrapping back around to have fun. Tori Chickering O'Connell was born in New Jersey to parents that cultivated a loving, safe, creative home environment where comedy, music and dance were a central part of the daily furniture of growing up. There is no question that this nurturing environment set her on a path to a creative career of being a journalist, producer, documentary filmmaker, comedy writer and published author of two books, Nookie Town and Trusted Family Values. In this vibrant two-parter, we cover Tori's upbringing and the influence of her parents and how they instilled the importance of having fun and not giving a damn. Tori discusses gratitude, having a why-not-me attitude and how, in her early career, this attitude landed her a job at MTV as she applied her creativity and embraced life's uncertainty and ambiguity with gusto. Tori reflects on applying this attitude in the time of COVID-19 and we discuss how new models are emerging in comedy, music and the arts during lockdown. We cover her extraordinary experience of making a documentary with some of today's most lauded comedians 20 years ago before they were famous. And we dive deep into how the serendipitous personal experience of becoming a divorcee in New Jersey led to the idea for her first novel, Nookie Town. She also covers the inspiration for her second book, Twisted Family Values, and reveals the idea for her third upcoming novel. I hope you enjoy the fun, frivolity, and freedom of not giving a damn with Tori Chickering O'Connell. Thank you. Welcome, Victoria. Tori, VC, yes. what is it? <laughs> well, my legal name is Victoria mm-hmm. uh, Chickering O'Connell. So VC is correct. Tori, most people call me Tori. So for the purposes of this this podcast, you're Tori. Sure. Yeah, whatever is most comfortable. So, very few people call me Victoria. There you go. But most people call me Tori. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you for having me. And a big shout out and thank you to the delightful Tina Kelly for recommending that we interview you next. Yes. Thank you to Tina. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the wonderful poet, author and writer. Yeah, she's fabulous. So great. So let's let's jump in. We did send you questions beforehand, but you'll see that we always, we try and follow a, a, a fairly standard format and we always start with upbringing and understand your life before becoming a writer. But I think you've been a writer all your life from what, from what we could understand and read and, and, and hear about you. So we'd like to understand more about the impact of your childhood and growing up in New Jersey. I uh, believe you had a, your father was a painter. I haven't quite, unless I missed it, I didn't really un- hear anything about what your mother was <laughs> if she was... And, and talk about really their influence in your life journey and impact in your sense of self and, and the journey you've been on as a writer and comedian. Yeah. Well, um, my mom was, growing up, we called her a mom. I mean, she was sort of the classic stay-at-home mom. But they, they really worked in partnership with each other. He was a painter, a beautiful, uh, or he painted oils, landscapes, and uh, still lives, mostly landscapes in the tradition of the Wyeths, the Wyeth family. And um, just gorgeous stuff. This is a uh, self-portrait of his from the seventies, back in the mustache seventies. I was I was going to say it's looking without without my glasses. I'm saying is that Will Ferrell behind you? 
<laughs> it was definitely the time to let the the uh, the curls go and the stash of prominence. It's got that anchorman look. Yes, yes, okay. very anchorman, very anchorman. So, and then mom was his uh, partner. You know, they did a lot of things in tandem. They he really looked to her. She has a great eye. She's also very funny. She's very smart, very, very creative. So one of the things I, I remember growing up, uh, there was cleanup week once a year, twice a year, and people would put their furniture out on the street and mom and dad would drive around and pick up chairs and couches and end tables. And my father would fix them, do the carpentry and the varnishing and the sanding and the repainting. And then my mother would do the upholstery and she would needlepoint or she would uh, needlepoint the, the base or the, the staples or the pins. So they, they really did sort of work in tandem. They decorated the house together. They both really appreciated and valued uh, architecture. When we went for driving trips, we always drove. We weren't a flying family. We were a driving family. So there was a lot of like kids look out the window check out that house, look at that turret, look at the gingerbread, look at the porch, the way it wraps around. And then museums, of course, were a big part of our childhood and music and movies and comedy. I mean, they both loved the arts. So she was instrumental as well as saying, you've got to see this movie. And they would sit us down and say, we're going to watch, you know, some old black and white film. Yeah, because listening to some of your other interviews, it, it, I've heard you talk about the importance of fun in your life and how they instilled that sense of creativity in, at every opportunity. Yes. From the list of, of VHS tapes that your father collect, collected and to, as you say, sort of the recommendations of films. At what point did you start to get a sense that, that, that let's say, the arts and creativity and writing was defining who you were as a person? I probably didn't recognize that it was unusual until I, I don't know, until many years later. I mean, it was such a, it was just, for us, it was very typical. We, my parents, one of the first things they did when they moved into our childhood home was remove the chandelier and put a, a, a mirror ball, a rotating mirror, <laughs> a disco ball in the dining room. So it was just completely normal that on a Saturday night after dinner, we would, the dining room table was on rollers. We would push the table out of the way and put on Michael Jackson or the, or the, you know, Thriller or the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever and put on these spotlights. My dad, he put spotlights up on the, these little bitty ledges and then the spotlights aimed and then the ball, he put a motor in the ceiling and the ball and we would dance. Just extraordinary. I, I can't imagine many, well, I, I've never heard of anyone, any parents doing that. <laughs> it's brilliant. It was completely typical for us. Have you ever sort of sat down and asked about why they did it? Well, there must this there was a conscious decision to say oh, by yeah. them saying, right, we're going to make our children imbue them with creativity and in, inject in them sort of the or to um, stimulate their imaginations in ways that other parents don't. Or was it just they just had this fascination and a love of disco? I think that people didn't parent as purposefully in the seventies as they do now. Uh-huh. Everything's very sort of um, positioned and purposeful. I think back then you parented the way you wanted to and, and you, you cherry-picked what your parents gave you. My grandmother was very, very artistic. Like she sewed everything. She sewed all the costumes for all the kids for Halloween. She was constantly making costumes. She made her own clothes. My other grandmother, my father's mother, carried a little list of songs that she knew all the lyrics to in her wallet so that if she ended up at a party with a piano and somebody were to say, would anyone like to sing a song? She could pull out the list and hand it to the piano player and say, here's my repertoire and then burst into song. So, and then my father was a a lifelong artist. My mother was extremely creative. They both loved music and dancing and movies and comedy. So it, it wasn't, it wasn't a decision. It's not something that they had to arrive at. It was just a house full of music, constantly music, and everything from Brandenburg to the Beatles and in between. And then the movies. I mean, we had 750 movies that my father painstakingly recorded off the television. And then my mother bought a little three-ring binder about this big and alphabetically 
had all the movies in our library. I hope you still got these. Alphabetical. I think I asked my mother recently, I said, do you still have that little book? I think she said she did, but my father might've thrown it away when he, when he moved it, everything to DVD. Anyway, you know, we were the house that on a Friday or Saturday night, the kids in the neighborhood would come to either to dance in the I can imagine, dining room yeah. in our socks. I mean, that was the best time. Or to put on, you know, fabulous old, really old movies. I mean, they would say, you, you have to watch Rita Hayworth. You mm. have to sit down. You have to see Madeline Kahn. You have to know who Madeline Kahn is and, you know, Carol Burnett. And we were just, they were force feeding us all this great stuff. What were your what memories or, or favorites do you have from that era? Oh, gosh. All the Mel Brooks films we watched <laughs> over and over again. Young Frankenstein, multiple times, maybe a year. We watched Valley Girl <laughs> once a year. We, I was one of three sisters, so it was a very girl power. It was a girl-powered home before we understood that there was such a thing as girl power. I mean, we, were, we outnumbered my, my father. So we watched a lot of Little House in the Prairie, you know, Wonder Woman. What was it? The Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman. So I grew up in a household where, you know, women were sort of running the world already back in the 70s. And what about siblings? Uh, two sisters, and they're both extremely creative. I'm the oldest of three daughters. My mother is the oldest of three daughters, and my sister had three daughters. Wow, that's unusual. A lot of female energy. They're both extremely creative. My actually, my youngest sister ended up uh, an art therapist, so she does something called expressive arts therapy, which is uh, everything but sitting in a chair talking. It's building Legos, it's cooking, it's it's drumming, it's art. So it's therapy through the arts. Expressive art therapy. Expressive art therapy. You can Google. You can go into Psychology Today and you can Google art therapist. And you can then start a practice with somebody who's not going to have you just sitting in a chair and talking. They're going to let you do puzzles. You're going to get to build stuff. You're going to get to work with your hands. It's great. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, it's wonderful. So the three vying creative geniuses, who was, who was the dominant <laughs> one as the oldest? Were you always... We, all, we were all incredibly crafty. I mean, there were always googly eyes and rickrack and glue. And I mean... You know, we're equally really funny. My parents are both hilarious. My father died about 10 years ago, but they were both hysterical and they made each other laugh a lot. So we, as a family, one of the other nice things about my home growing up, which I took for granted, is that there was a speaker in every room. So there was music throughout the house. There wasn't one room that you went in to, to well, listen. That's incredible. Way before Sonos or any of the technologies oh, available. Sure. So your father must sure. have gone to some quite extreme ends oh, to sure. make that happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there was a speaker in the kitchen, speaker in the dining room, speaker in the living room. And so when music was was going on, you know, if, if Earth, Wind and Fire came on, like we would jump up and dance. <laughs> and my parents loved to dance and my dad was a great dancer. So we grew up, just grew up. It was so typical for us. It was absolutely normal. And I've heard you say that every day you went to school, your parents would leave you and say, have fun. Yeah. How important do you believe that, that just that those simple words Boy. are in a, on a, a repetitive daily basis, what effect it has on the neuroplasticity of a child? I think massive, massive. And that's only occurred to me recently uh, in talking to other adults and, and folks that I've met you know, who, who heard their parents say things like, do your best or make me proud or try your hardest or, you know, I mean, obviously society needs all kinds of people and we need all kinds. That's what makes horse racing, you know, but this notion of having fun, I think it's been, been so important and integral to who I am because you know, you, you do, you go through childhood and most people get their childlike wonder and curiosity and risk-taking behavior completely squelched and, and stomped out of them by the time they're like 11. And then we, we grow up and we start reading magazines and listening to TED Talks that basically reorient us and say what we should have been doing is finding something that, we're, that we love to do. 
right? So then we're fed this, like, find something you love to do. Find something where when you're doing it, time is passing. Time should be flying by when you're doing what you love. And hopefully if you can find something that you get paid to do where time flies by. So this is all wrapping back around to have fun. Like, are you having fun? And, And that actually feeds into relationships. You know, my father used to say when we were going off on a date, he would say, listen to your stomach. It will tell you if you're not having fun or if, it, if you don't feel safe. I think what he was saying is if you don't feel safe, but he was saying, listen to your gut, listen to your stomach. It will tell you if you're enjoying yourself. And so that was a barometer. It's so true. That should be, I think. It's not the first time that fun has come up because I think we, it's, we dismiss it. It sounds frivolous and diversionary. Yeah. And actually, it's core to our being. I think it's absolutely core, and it's at core to our creativity and to our ability to. I mean, I think, I think in the '90s when you know all those uh, during the dot com the dot com boom, and younger people started being in charge of office buildings, and they would put ping pong tables in, and scooters, and you know rooms and spaces that were diversionary, purposefully diversionary, so that you could give your brain a rest go play a little ping pong, let your mind wander. I mean, that's when the ideas, that's when ideas come to us. When we are looking for sea glass on the beach or, or playing badminton or, you know, dancing. I mean, it's true. I spent my, most of my career in advertising and ideas don't happen when you're sitting in the office at a desk or around a meeting table. Well, occasionally a meeting table is a brainstorm, but usually they come in those waking moments or when you're lying in the bath or out a run or drifting off yeah. to sleep because that's yeah. when you're in that relaxed alpha theta state and not your brain wired on coffee. I'll tell you who it was that mentioned fun. It was Lorna Davis, who was the ex-CEO of Danone, South African, brilliant lady. And what she's yeah. similar to you, she talked as well as a lot about the importance of dance Ah, as yes. well. Body engagement, like body, your body in space. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's fascinating. We always ask people about the role of play and the freedom to explore and the safety of the environment. From just what you've said, it sounds like, I mean, (laughs) it's a redundant question because clearly everything they did was to instill a sense of make life playful. You've talked about the both of them. I mean, what was their background? Not in terms of their careers, but with a name like O'Connell, I assume Irish immigrants. Well, I married an O'Connell. I married and divorced an Ah, O'Connell. Okay. (laughs) Here, here the story <laughs> but, begins. But I did, you know, my my family is English, Irish, Danish, and Scottish. Perfect mix, I should say. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but tough. Like my Danish grandmother ruled with an iron fist. She was extremely creative, but she was a ball buster. And my Scottish grandfather was pretty tough, could be pretty tough. And then my English grandfather had the whimsy and and levity sort of twisted out of him as a child through circumstance and then the and then my the <laughs> the one that carried the the little list of songs in her purse uh-huh. my father's mother she was hilarious but she was an alcoholic I mean, well they were all alcoholics actually lots of alcoholism so there's this this swing of sort of levity and and gravity that i think infuses a lot of artists. I think that's pretty typical of the, of the background and the, and the composition of, of that need to express and also the desire to find joy and, and just have the access to joy. But wait, you were saying, I'm getting away from what you were talking about. Oh, just the other thing I think was really integral to, to creating artistic expression and making it feel safe is and I'm also noticing this so much more and more is, is my, my parents. So we had a costume box in the attic and people from all over town would come to our house when they were going to a costume party. I need, you know, something, it's a jungle theme or it's a fifties theme or it's a, you know, outer space theme. And my parents say, Oh, we have something, come on up to the attic. And so and then my parents themselves were invited to costume parties. <laughs> so it was not unusual for us to like waving to our, our parents with a babysitter on a Saturday night. And he's dressed, you know, in, a, in some kind of a crazy loincloth with an arrow through his head. And she's got a 
who knows? She's a princess or whatever. So, and it was like, good night, kids. Good night, mom and dad. Like that was very typical. When, when, when Rocky Heart Picture Show came out, they saw it first. And then they said to me, we have to take you to Rocky. You're going to have to stay up until midnight, but we have to take you. And they brought the rice and the water pistols and the newspaper and the hot dogs. I mean, they brought all the- How old were you? I was like, I think I was like 12. Oh, brilliant. But they were like, you've got to see this and you've got to come experience this. So what that served, the purpose that served in us as becoming adults, the three of us, is the freedom to look ridiculous, the freedom to wear a costume on Halloween through my 40s. Like I, I commuted into New York City in a gorilla costume on Halloween like 10 years ago. Freedom to not give a damn. To the freedom to not give a damn. And, and the way, I think it's the puritanical, I don't know, it's the puritanical ethic, but the, our, our society is consumed with what will people think? What will people think? How do I look? What will they think? What will they say? How will I be judged? Will I, and it really boils down to, will they still love me? Will people still love me? If I look like an idiot, Will they still love me? It all boils down to love, right? Everything, everything, everything boils down to will I be still, still be loved? So growing up in a household where I could leave for school wearing my clothes backwards and know that I'll still be loved. I was experimenting with clothes, doing all this. I wore like a red union suit to school with a belt. A, what, a red what? A red what? A union suit, like a full piece, like pajamas, like a red, they're called union suits. They button up the front. Mm. And I belted that and went off to school and that was fine. So I was never ashamed. This notion of you have to look like, every, don't stand out. Don't do that. Don't try that. Don't like, that was not part of my experience. The freedom and the power, there's a real strength in not giving a damn. That's a powerful life force. I don't care what you think of me. So I'm going to try this. I'm going to wear that. I'm going to date this person. I'm going to try this career. I'm going to take that job. I'm going to live in that town. I mean, it's, it's, it hobbles and squelches and creates so much dis-ease, I think, in so many people. I think it's the reason why we have so much addiction in our country. It's really interesting the way that you just use that word. There's so much dis-ease. Yeah. And I wonder how that contributes to disease. I think it does. I mean, if you're, if you're doing the wrong thing, to impress or please other people and you do it for years and it can't, how can that not manifest somehow physically or psychically or emotionally? So, so the, I mean, gosh, I just jumped in fountains. I mean, I, I would swim where, when I got hot, I would take off my shoes and walk in a fountain. I mean, there, and there are other cultures that do that more. They're looser. Definitely yeah. there are places where you can live and people are way more relaxed than America, for sure. Italy, way more relaxed. I think Scandinavia, way more relaxed. Even the Germans, I find if you go to somewhere like Berlin in summertime and everyone's swimming naked in the, in the lakes. It's just great. And, and picnicking and in America, it's like, oh, we can't, don't sit there and don't. And people self sabotage themselves. They tell themselves we probably shouldn't sit there. So my philosophy is let's, let's do it until somebody tells us we can't instead of, right? Like they'll tell, if they want us to not to sit here, somebody will come out and say, don't sit here. But otherwise, no. So that just takes us nicely to education and what young Tori was like at school. Uh, Because if you're, if you've got that attitude and your parents are instilling you that type of worldview, wait to be told until don't do it. It maybe goes, it flies in the face of the disciplinarian approach to schooling. How did you fit in at school and talk to us about the type of friends that you were attracted to? That must be fascinating. Um, (laughs) Well, school was a mix. So school for me, and I don't remember a lot. So you're asking somebody who's 54 to remember a long time ago. And my memory is pretty crappy at this point. I wish I remembered. I have a fantasy of like going around and asking people, what do you remember? Tell me stories about my life because I don't remember them. But I was a combination of 
wearing whatever I wanted to wear, you know, wearing my clothes backwards. And I was in the musicals and the plays and I love the art room. I spent a lot of time. I, I, I love to make the posters for the plays and, and, um, photography. And, and I was this weird combination of pretty outspoken and pretty out there, but I could also be, uh, lambasted for it. So I was bullied for that kind of outspokenness, that sort of joie de vivre. There's usually, and this is true, this was a pattern that, that there's, there tends to be always somebody who wants to tear you down. There tends to be somebody who wants to teach you a lesson. Mm-hmm. You're having too much fun. You're enjoying yourself. You're a little bit too confident, a little bit too laissez-faire, a little funny. Too funny, too whimsical, too silly, whatever. You're too of something. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to use my power or my social clout, social currency to take you down a few notches. So I experienced that a lot through the years. Mm. It didn't stop me. I didn't learn from it. It didn't quell it. Because I kept going to school, you know, dressed in costume on Halloween through my senior year. I was the only one. It didn't stop me, but it uh, made for some rough times, for sure, growing up. And what about your teachers? How did they embrace you and your creativity? I no idea. I think I was probably, for some, I think I was probably a delight to have. I think for others, I was probably a pain in the ass, too chatty and too jokey and but at that point when you were at school, where you, you were obviously writing, I've heard you talk about how you were writing notes for your friends, journaling, that sort of voracious appetite for, for writing. Did you have any sense at that time or any ambitions of what you wanted to do with your life? I loved, because I loved singing and dancing, I thought I wanted to be a performer, an actor, you know, somebody in musicals. I mean, I grew up with a lot of musicals, um, Ginger Rogers and Busby Berkeley and Shirley Temple. And that just looked like so much fun. Leslie Caron. That just seemed like the greatest possible life to, to live. So this notion of making movie musicals and, and also Madeline Kahn and then, you know, Gilda Ratner, everybody in Saturday Night Live. So I wanted to, I thought I wanted to be a performer, but I also always wrote at the time, nobody really said to me, you could be a writer it seemed far-fetched. There weren't a lot of, I mean, there was Judy Bloom, and then there was the woman who wrote the Nancy Drew mysteries. I'm blanking on her name right now. But most of the stuff we read in school was written by men, you know, of course, back in the 70s. So, and the, and the experiences were men's experiences or young boys, Catcher in the Rye, you know, as a, as a boy, yeah. as a man. So it didn't occur to me that that was something I could have really focused on until the nineties when I'd been freelancing for bust magazine, but no, no, I hadn't, I hadn't started yet. And I was at CBGB's. You were asking about CBGB's. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to ask about that because it's not often you meet people that have been to CBGB's and it's one of the, those iconic New York locations and venues. You think, wow, oh, yeah. what must have been like, but well, but look, we'll come to that. So, you, at school, I mean, you obviously, you, you wanted, if you say you wanted to get into theatre and to dance, but you, you didn't. You left school and went to NYU. So I went to NYU for theatre and dance. And I was a, a theatre major and a dance minor. And um, that was great. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was what it was. I mean, it was an education in, in acting and dancing. But then you did a the, you did a year at film school. Yes. Yeah, so production. back in the back in the day, you could get a BFA in acting at NYU if you were in the program for three years. You know, the other thing that I think contributes. So I spent a, 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 my junior year in Paris, from September through June in Paris, and I think that one of the, your questions later on, we can get to that, is what contributes to ideas, and I think travel. I think travel is so important. And so to have parents that said, go, 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 where do you want to go? You want to go to Paris for a year? Great. Do it. And then to see what, uh, what they're doing over there, they were, they do things differently in France, you know, thank God. And so 
to get that immersion of our, again, architecture and clothing, fashion and humor and music and the way they, their radio, I was really impressed with like how eclectic the radio shows were in Paris in the eighties. But you were asking about school. So, right. So I go to acting school and then I, I finish oh, three years, you get your BFA and then in acting and then your fourth year, you can do whatever you want. So I came back and went to the film school and that was great. And while you're film school, fantastic. I had always loved this sort of confluence of the visual storytelling. So it's storytelling, it's visual. It, editing is so much freaking fun. Oh my gosh. Editing is so great. Don't know if I can agree with you on that, having spent countless weekends editing at hours yeah, and <laughs> I know, I know. It's a time suck, but it's kind of a joyous time suck for oh, me. The final outcome's great. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I went to N- LA. I went to Edinburgh. I produced something at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. What I, year was that? Oh, gosh. 88? I would have been there that time. 89? Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's I was great. in Edinburgh, 88, 89, yeah. Oh, you were? So I was yeah, there too. Yeah, oh, wonderful. That was great. People that haven't been to Edinburgh Festival, need, there's so many people you, you meet, don't know about it. You go, yeah. how can you have not been how to the most wonderful, extraordinary experiences on the planet? It's incredible. And here's, here's the thing I was very proud of is, is, you know, we got there. I was, I was subcontracted by an NYU professor who failed me. The only F I've ever gotten in my life was in the history of theater at NYU. And the professor failed me, failed, the cor- failed me in the course, but then hired me to take his wife's one woman show to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Ah, How funny is that? Uh, It was called New York sex killing and the shopping. And we had like such a small budget. We had like a a $100 promo promotional budget. So I had to find like places to stay. We're doing all this remotely in the eighties. So it's a lot of like writing letters to people and phone calls and, and, it's pre-internet. So I find us a place, secure us a place to stay, secure us a venue. Where was the venue? Do you remember? Oh gosh, I really don't. I mean, mm. I have no idea, but it was in the back of some, I don't know, I, like a bar. Maybe, <laughs> like or, everything, like all the small venues. Yeah. yeah some yeah. corner, some cupboard. So I, I secure all the stuff and I get the permits and I, I fill us and I, I get us in there. And then what the little money that we've got, I think I did the whole thing on like $600 is my whole budget. And whatever's left was our press budget, promotional budget, very little. So I create this flyer, excuse me, we have no money to do like a beautiful four color, fancy, shiny poster. So I get take, take it to Kinko's and I get a hundred just stupid black and white. And then we take highlighters and we color in, hand color in all the posters with highlighters. We get to Edinburgh and there are thousands of Posters and flyers everywhere on every tree and every telephone pole and every, I mean, you've, you know, you know. Oh yeah, it is. The entire city is papered and vying for your eyeballs, right? Every single show is vying for your eyeballs. So we hire this guy to do sound who's lovely. And he said, you know, the average audience is six people. And a dog. <laughs> dog. <laughs> because it's, you're, you're, the competition is so fierce for audience that if you can get six people per show, you've really done something. You should be proud of that. I was like, okay, so I'm hanging up these dumb, and everybody else has got glossy, gorgeous, four-color printed, beautiful. You've got these stupid. But on the image is this woman, my professor's wife, in a black bikini, and the title is New York, Sex Killing, and the Shopping. So we put these up all over town. We open up. We get 110 people sold out. The next night, 110 people sold out. Next night, 110 people sold out. We sold out every single show. So you must have got pick. You must have got pick of the fringe. We didn't get pick the fringe. Wow! But we did a nice. I mean, we got a return on the business, and everybody got. I got to pay the sound guy, and you know, it was a positive experience. Fantastic! It was a great. We couldn't believe. But I think it was the title and the bikini, the black underwear. Yeah. Well, also just <laughs> just stand, the standout. I mean, when everything else is glossy and you've got something else right. that isn't, yes. that in itself makes it yeah. unique. Yeah. So yeah, so that early adventurous life, this journey that not just Edinburgh, I've heard you talk about, you've been to Paris, San Francisco, LA. Not only had your parents instilled in you 
uh, an appetite for curiosity and creativity. You also seem to be comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity. What advice would you give to people? I mean, we're living at the moment, we can't avoid talking about this COVID-19 crisis, whatever way we look at it, whether it's uh, existentially or just purely on a medical and basis. You know, we are in a time of massive uncertainty. What advice would you give to people to help them navigate and approach uncertain times, something that you seem to be very comfortable with? Or how would you just maybe just reflect on uncertainty and ambiguity? They are loaded words. Yeah. So two things come to mind. One is that my parents always said, as we were packing up, as I packed to move to live in Paris for a year, sight unseen, no idea where I was going to stay. They didn't go with me to find me an apartment. They didn't come on the plane. They didn't, you know, that was all me. I just sort of showed up and had to go to a bulletin board and look at a bunch of three by five cards and copy down some numbers and visit some places. And same with uh, Los Angeles. I drove across country. I had no idea where I was going to stay until I got there. Found a place to stay, San Francisco, Boston. I stayed with a girlfriend, San Francisco. I stayed with a girlfriend. So this notion of taking off into the unknown and not knowing what's what awaits. My parents always said, you can always come home. They said, the worst thing that can happen is that you come home. That's the worst thing that happens. It's a bust and none of it works out. So you pack everything back in your car and you drive home. And then we start over. We pick a new plan. So growing up with that firmly, I mean, that was just such a great ethos to instill in me. Is that you can just start over then. If it doesn't work out, start again. Like fish or cut bait and then start over. So I think with, I mean, that doesn't apply to COVID so much as, I mean, the, the COVID stuff for me is the uncertainty. You know, that's more stuff I've learned in my 40s, like as an older seasoned adult, which is live in the now, be grateful for every day, you know, make a list of all the things that are going well. I learned that trick when I was getting divorced because my whole world was caving in around me and the rug was being pulled out from under me. And so I put it, I tied a thread, a single piece of thread string around my wrist. And I thought every time I notice the thread, I will have to, I have to come up with three things I'm grateful for. And so I did that all day long because it forced me, okay, what's working? What is working? Like there's a whole, yes, there's obviously a lot that isn't working, but what is working? So to try to refocus on what's working. But for me, for the COVID, you know, try to go back in time. I'm very lucky. I feel extremely fortunate at this time because I have so many passions and hobbies. So with this time, I can write, I can write songs, I can write books, I can sew, I can craft, I can, you know, pull out all manner of, again, pom-poms and rick-rack and googly eyes and glitter and I could choreograph an entire musical in my head. I mean, like I could redecorate rooms. I could learn how to sew a pantsuit out of crazy fabric. Like there are a thousand things I can do, you know, outside of puzzles and reading. It's a good time to be creative because you don't need much. And then you get to still work your magic. I'm sure it's a tough time for people who feel they don't have hobbies or they don't think they're creative. I'm not creative. You know, then I would say, I don't know, baking. I mean, baking to me is very creative. Cooking is very creative. A lot of people are, are, are letting themselves be super creative in that way. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. They say that there's no flour or yeast anywhere in any of the stores. Like, out of flour and yeast. I've got a pile here, and it wasn't thought I, I had That's it beforehand. Great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the crafters are going to make stuff. Obviously, people are making masks. Mm-hmm. They're sewing. They're making masks. They're making hats with buttons for the, you know, yeah. for the masks for the healthcare workers. And the bakers are baking, and the and the chefs are cooking. So I think it's a great it's a, a great time to 
feel useful. Mm-hmm. If you have, if there's something that you can contribute in some way. And, and actually the comedians are putting comedy out. I mean, there's a, a woman I follow and she did a couple, she did a set a couple of weeks ago and she was supposed to be at a comedy club. And she said, well, I'm going to do my set for you guys now. And if I make you laugh, you know, it would have been a $10 cover. If you could Venmo me 10 bucks, that would be awesome. And she made Lovely. me laugh and I Venmoed her 10 bucks. Brilliant. I would love it. Yeah. I was going to ask you about, you know, how, and in the comedy scene, how are people, because everyone has to adjust to this, whether it's a new normal or an adjusted short-term normal, no one really knows where, where things are going to go. But uh, chefs are doing extraordinary things from Jose Andre, I think it is, to uh, someone I know and who runs a Palestinian restaurant in the Ninth Avenues making meals for first responders. But comedians who are used to being in packed, tight, sweaty, uh, dark comedy clips, yeah, (laughs) having to entertain an audience they can't see and engage with. Okay, yeah, they could maybe do Zoom rooms and that type of thing, but but it must be it must be challenging for a lot of them. Well, what's what I'm noticing, which is wonderful, is that a lot of them are. So most comics only need one other person to bounce off of. So the really good ones, so you've got, you know, Seth uh, Myers and Stephen Colbert and Trevor, they don't need anybody. They can, they can do their bits. They can do their monologues uh, up in the attic or down in the basement. And um, they're just pros, you know, they don't need that as much. What I'm noticing that uh, there's a wonderful boom of Instagram live. So What's nice is that a comedian can get on Instagram Live with one other comedian. They only need one other person. You only need one other person to be funny with. And then that back and forth gets to happen. And so we get to then enjoy two comics enjoying each other on Instagram Live. Do you know what's going to be really interesting is to see what new emerges from it in terms of material and techniques, because they're having to reinvent so maybe the way that new material emerges using these new te- these technologies will change yeah. the way that comedy goes in the future. There's going to be so much that comes, so much growth and so much evolution that comes out of this. It's going to, yeah. between the arts and creative, the fomentation of everybody. The other thing I'm excited about are the people that can't go into, the, the artists that weren't able to be artists and once they, obviously nesting is first, it's your top priority is, is my family fed and safe? Like yeah. once you get your, your basic needs secure and you can relax, then all these people that didn't have the opportunity or time to be artists are going to have that opportunity and time. So I'm excited to see what comes out of not the already established artists, but the people that we don't. The emerging, artists, yeah. the emerging artists who are going to give themselves permission, hopefully, to do all this wonderful stuff. Uh, I just want to mention that Mike Birbiglia, who's a comic, he's doing something now. He's got an Instagram live series happening right now. I think it's weekdays at 2 p.m. on his Instagram, and it's called Tip Your Weight Staff. And he talks to a different comic every day or most every day. And he's raising money for all the wait staffs at all the comedy clubs in America. Oh, so brilliant. the light, the light guy, the sound guy, the wait staff, the chefs, the, you know, the cook, the bar back, the bartender. What's it, what's it called? It's called tip your wait staff. I think it's a GoFundMe or maybe it's a.com. Um, but he's raising many, many tens of thousands of dollars now through these conversations with Sarah Silverman and Patton Oswalt. And all these wonderful comics. And then he, so he's taking care of his people. Like people are taking care of their people, which is wonderful. So that's coming out of it, which is tremendous. That's also, um, Saturday Night Live is hosting a Zoom, a whole entire Saturday Night Live on Saturday on all, all the all the actors and all the comedians. Uh, that's great. You know that? Yeah. No, but oh, that really? sounds so it's great. It's going on at eleven thirty usual hour, and they're all going to be on there. Um, that's together awesome. And, that's yeah. Awesome. Oh my goodness, that's going to be great. <laughs> I know. I, I'm really so curious to see how that's going to work. But yeah. I, I I follow them on this various social medias, and I saw that they were all prepping and 
yeah. was on there and all yeah. the comedians. So yeah, kind of cute. It's that, wonderful. Yeah. I mean, the, the symphony. Like nothing can stop them. I kind of like that aspect of right. it. You know? But that's true with the late night programs like Stephen Colbert, Seth Meyers, mm-hmm. Samantha B. Samantha B. is doing her show from her backyard in the woods. <laughs> you know, I mean, it. The, what, you don't need, you need writers and you need material and ideas. And, and technology. And technology. Exactly. So you don't need a set. You don't need, you know, Stephen Colbert has even been throwing to his band leader, who's in New Orleans, I think. Not sure where he is, but, you know, who, to play him out when he does a segment. Yeah. Um, have you seen the orchestras who've been playing? No. Like, oh, God, it's just, like, incredible. The I think there was the Netherlands Orchestra. There are these uh, international orchestras who are Zooming all the players in their living rooms, playing all the different instruments spectacular Pachelbel Cannon and doing Anaclena Nacht music. And I mean, it's, it's brings tears to your eyes. So, you know, it's doable. People are doing it. They just don't have all the bells and whistles, but you don't need all the bells and whistles. Bettina, what we have to, what we have to do is I think for our, our next digest in, it should be one on all the creative industries and how they're using the technologies and pull together like the the comedians, the orchestras, the singers. And yes. pull that that'd be really good. Yeah. Yes. Okay. The other one that comes in mind that we had there was an Italian director. I'm Italian, so obviously I'm very patriotic, especially what you're going through. But there is an Italian conductor, and he sang the Nabucco. Have you seen this? That he he directed the Nabucco, oh. a piece of the Nabucco, like the 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 choir of slaves, which is the oh. famous piece of the Nabucco. It's incredible. With like something like 45 opera singers around the world. Great. I was like, uh, oh. literally, I was, I teared. Oh, yes. It was yes. so emotional. Bettina, can you share that with us? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay. All right. There's the Hamilton group. They got together and they did, they did a song from Hamilton and, Jimmy Fallon did a, did a song with the roots stuck in the middle with yeah. me. That's really funny. You should check that one out. I'll check. Okay. Right. You to do then. Right. So, okay. That's um, a nice way to segue because we're talking about music into what was CBGB's like? <laughs> CBGB's is a dump. I mean, it was <laughs> like, it was just filthy. I wish I have two regret, one regret. Uh, is that I gave away my CBGB's t-shirt. I had a black CBGB's t-shirt and I was dating this guy very briefly. And he was like, do you want to do a t-shirt exchange? And I said, sure. And he said, I'll take your CBGB's. I said, okay. And then I thought he was going to give me like a really good one. And he gave me sort of this shitty t-shirt and I never got it back. And anyway, I'll always regret that. But no. CBGB's, you know, you walked in the door and it was a long, narrow, rectangular, very deep, very narrow. So there's probably room for, so there's a bar on the right and the whole thing is painted black. The whole space is painted black and it's just got like stickers and graffiti and posters, just bullshit everywhere on all the surfaces. But the stickers have been, you know, partially peeled back. And then at the very end of the, it was a stage and then the bands were just up there and it was, everybody was just sweaty and it was dark and it was, the, the chairs are broken and but it was fantastic. It was like, you know, you, you have, when a space is that raw, you don't worry about spilling your drink because you're dancing too hard. Like you dance as hard as you want because you're not worried about breaking the furniture. The furniture is already broken. You don't worry about bumping into anybody or messing up anybody's, you know, it's just, it was just a really great place to kind of go nuts. The reason I was going to tell that story about CBGB's is because I was, after all years of writing and pen pals and journals and diaries and writing scripts and monologues for myself, I used to write my own monologues. I was in CBGB's and there was a, a woman there named uh, Marcel Karp. And I knew her, she had started a magazine called, or a zine called Bust. She was one of the co-founders of a zine called Bust. And um, she... Uh, we were seeing the Geraldine Fibbers was a band with a, a woman, lead singers, a, a chick. And I think she played the fiddle or something. It was like punk, but with a fiddle. It was amazing. And so I saw Marcel at the back of the room. I was like, Marcel, these guys are great. You should write about them. You should interview them for, for Bust, for the magazine. And she said, why don't you? You interview them. I said, really? 
And I said, well, I've never, she's like, you could do it. You could do it just as easily as I could do it. You should do that. Do that. Oh, I must've been, I must've met her at MTV. I think I was working at MTV. And so she said, yeah, write it up. Interviewer, tell her you work for Bust and um, get, give me 500 words, you know, by the end of next week. And so because she, that, that's a serendipitous moment. The fact that she happened to be there, I was there, I saw her, and the, and the generosity of her to say, you could do this as easily as I could. You should write it up. So I did. I turned it in. It was printed in the zine that very soon thereafter became a magazine. And then I ended up writing for Bust for two or three years. And that gave me, and I interviewed Joan Jett and Judy Bloom and Amy Poehler. Oh, brilliant. And that gave me the confidence of, oh yeah, I can do this. And I was also putting in, having personal essays. So I was having personal essays under the name Tori Galore. And then I was interviewing as well. But that gave me the, the, the impetus. That was my jump. That was my springboard of you can do this legitimately. You, mm-hmm. you could be a writer. You can do this. Because I also heard you talk about a story of where you were in an, an MTV encounter where mm-hmm. you used the, this great term, not yet, when asked about a job. Because <laughs> you're just, because I think that's, it's a, it's a great attitude to have. We had a, a guest, I think it was Beth Comstock, that talked about having a not yet attitude to things. Um, right. is much more empowering than, than no. Yeah, absolutely. Could you just recount that story? Sure, sure. I was living in San Francisco. I had, so I, I, after college, acting, dancing, modern dance, I moved out to LA to find my fame and fortune. Uh, and I was there for about two years and I quit. And I say, this is so not for me. I am not going to make it in this on this side of the camera, this is not going to work for me for like a lot of different reasons. I'm just, I was, <laughs> I just thought this is not going to work for me. So I quit acting and um, I moved to San Francisco and I spent a, San, a year in San Francisco living with my girlfriend. And, um, and that was a serendipitous also. Her mother was killed in the helicopter crash with Bill Graham. She was dating Bill Graham. He was a very famous concert promoter on the West Coast and the East Coast, the Fillmore West, Fillmore East, Warfield Theater, Cal Palace. And so she said, my mother was just killed. Can you come up? Will you come up and help me? And she was a dear, dear friend. I said, absolutely. So I quit my job, left LA, quit acting, moved to San Francisco. And I worked at Bill Graham Presents for a year. I got a job at Bill Graham Presents. And then while I was there, I went home for Christmas and I bumped into an old girlfriend who I had cast in a play that I wrote and produced and directed in college, Laura. And Laura's boyfriend, Todd, worked at MTV. And Todd said to me, you should work at MTV. This would be perfect for you. It's, it's funny. It's music. It's movement. It's composition. It's art. It's this confluence of all these things. It's energy. It's wackiness and creativity and and you should work at MTV. I'm going to introduce you to my boss. I said, great. I'd love to work at MTV. Introduce me to your boss. So we plan to have lunch the next week and I go into MTV. And so we're walking down the halls of MTV and we're looking for his boss. And um, we come around a corner and there's his boss. I can't remember his name right now. And Todd said to him, this guy, this is my friend Tori. And the guy put his hand out and said, do you work here? And I said, not yet. <laughs> and I had a, just a big smile on my face. And he said, do you want to work here? And I said, you bet. Or something, you know, like, yes, I do. He said, well, it's going to be long hours. You're going to be underpaid. You're going to be the older, oldest person here. You're going to be treated probably pretty poorly. But if you're serious, the next time we have an opening, I'll get you in there. And he was right about all of those things. And I. I campaigned for the job. I went back to San Francisco and every time, and I would like make him funny things. I I would, I had a hat that I sewed ribbon around the hat. And then I put like a little man at the top of the hat. And then I, I sent him weird. I just sent him weird things that I made every couple of weeks. He would get a package from me. And then in April he said, there's a job opening. Do you still want it? And I said, yes, I do. 
Great. So I threw Great. everything back in the car and drove back across country and started at MTV. And that was in New York. And that was in New York. Wow. And it was, it was a, conf- it was all the things I love. It was wackiness, comedy, music, which I loved and the composition, art and design and, you know, all together. It was creating promos for the channel, for the network. It was so much fun. When you hear you talk, it sounds like your, your life attitude is, is a combination of seeking fun, always seeking fun, just trusting in life, uh, accepting, embracing mistakes as they happen or the whatever road that life takes you down, figuring it out as you go along. It doesn't sound like a lot of people live their lives being very planned and goal setting. You sound like you've just, it's, a, it's an amalgam of, that's bound together by embracing and seeking fun. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, if somebody were to say, you should try this, I don't necessarily stop myself. I don't say, oh, I, I, never, I couldn't do that. That couldn't be me. I don't, I try not to self-sabotage. I try not to stop myself. I sort of, my, especially once you, once you turn 50, you turn 50 years old, it's like jumping over a broom. It's like getting over, you step over this line in the sand where you, you, if you haven't already been not caring what people think about you, you really should start. Like 50 is the time to stop giving a shit what anybody thinks. And so this idea of let's try it. Let's go for it. Again, back to my mom. The worst thing that can happen is it doesn't work out. Go home. You get another job or you come yeah. home or yeah. you reset. You Somehow you reset. It doesn't work out. So yes, I think I just went for it. Why not me? Mm-hmm. You know, why shouldn't I work at MTV? It's, it's another great philosophy. Why not me? Yeah. Yeah. You made a documentary 20 years ago, <laughs> I believe around 20 years ago, about 100 comedians performing stand-up, uh, I think also for 45 seconds, which is a, in itself a wonderful idea. I think it was called The Night of 100 Stars that featured a bunch of unknown comedians <laughs> yeah. whose, whose names include Louis C.K., Mark Maron, Zach Galifianakis, and you also interviewed them at the same time. Now, 20 years on, that suddenly takes on a different life of its own. It was a documentary you apparently you didn't get commissioned. Mm-mm. Please, please, please make this thing happen. I know. Oh, <laughs> I want to. I want to. I want to see it. I'm desperate. <laughs> We're trying so hard. We're trying so hard. So that was um, my father was a music lover, jazz lover, and we had a poster in our house of uh, a great day in Harlem. Do you know this? Yeah, this? yeah. I mean, it's um, it was an amazing uh, the new. IFC um, photography gallery on Bowery. Mm-hmm. They did a history of hip hop recently. Oh yeah, yeah. Before the sh- before the lockdown, and sure. they did a recreation of that famous. <gasps> but with hip hop, all hip hop artists. Oh, that's beautiful. It's brilliant, absolutely oh, fantastic. I've got. I, t- I took a photograph of the photograph. It's wonderful. Yeah, but yes, nice. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So my father had the poster in our house. And I had seen the documentary, A Great Day in Harlem, about the taking of that photograph. And I, when I worked at MTV, I met this guy named David Wayne, uh, who was in a comedy group called The State. And so I became friendly with a couple of those people, a couple of those guys. And David Wayne had started a, a weekly ultimate Frisbee game in Central Park every Sunday, year round, 52 weeks out of the year, rain or shine or snow, we played ultimate Frisbee in Central Park. So we were a bunch of ragtag comedians and a couple of teachers, public school teachers, and my friend who worked for the mayor's office and another girlfriend of mine who worked in television. And David Wayne was like, come play, come play. So we played every Sunday. And Matt Walsh, who was in UCB, who you would know now from Veep, he plays McClintock on Veep. Yeah. the press secretary. So Matt was in this group of ultimate Frisbee players and David Wayne, who, who directs features, he, he's directing something right now called medical police, which is really funny. And he's done a bunch of features and a bunch of, he did the wet hot American summer series. And then this guy named Leo Allen and Leo Allen is also creates television. And so Leo and Matt were roommates and, and we were taking a break from the game. It was like halftime. We were all taking a break and Matt, and Leo said, 
they had been assigned a Luna Lounge. So Luna was this dank, dark, filthy little back room behind a bar. At the end, at the back of a bar, was a room with shitty, broken down couches, uh, mismatched couches, and a stage. And so each week, a different comic was assigned. This is going to be your week. You can book the night and you can ask your friends and put a night together. So it was Matt and Leo's night. They had been given a night and they said, should we, let's try to do something where they're 45. Do you think that there are enough comics in New York city right now where we can get a hundred comics to do a night at Luna? If everybody got 45 seconds, only 45 seconds. And I was standing with them and I was working at PBS at the time. So I had access to all the equipment. I had the, the booms and the gaffs, you know, the, the recording equipment and the height cameras and the tripods, everything. And so I said, oh, if you do that, I want to record it. I want to document it because I, and I want to take a photograph because I had this great day in Harlem photograph in mind. And I had a girlfriend who was at SVA, Kirsten Brannon at the time, and she had access to a 10 by 10 format, gorgeous Hasselblad camera. So I said to Matt, if you and Leo are going to pull this off, I want to document it and take a photo. And they said, sure. So I pre-produced the shoot of, and I shot, so I I had a crew shooting the show and pre-producing, getting ready for the show and getting people to, I mean, it was before the internet. There was no texting. It was word of mouth. A hundred comics actually showed up. We gave everybody numbers one through a hundred. And then we had, we were using Max Fish, which was another bar across the street. We had PAs. And this is not knowing if anybody would show up, if this would work, we had to be ready like FedEx on their first day. So we had PAs calling, you know, one through 10 on deck, 11 through 20 in the bar, and then 21 through 29 across the street. And then everybody else at a different bar because the bars were too small. And we did take a huge, gorgeous photo. I sort of have, I can show you. Oh, wow. Oh, there is amazing. Wow. It must be great to get in close there and start to spot them. Isn't it wonderful? Take a photo of that and send it to us. And we'll, yeah, yeah. We'll, I can we'll send it, it yeah. for sure. So we take the photograph. The show goes off without a hitch. I have all this footage. And then Matt said, let's interview just a few of the people the next week. Let's invite just a few people back to my apartment. So we invited back to do talking head interviews, like one-on-one interviews. We invited all of the state, the Upright Citizens Brigade, which is Amy Poehler and Matt Walsh and and Ian and Matt, and then Janine Garofalo, Jody Lennon, Amy Poehler, Todd Berry, Artie Lang, Mark Maron. And so that, and then that was a really nice sort of back and forth. And we interviewed, and we talked to comics about you know, what would you be doing if you weren't be doing comedy? What did, what do your parents think about what you do? Should comedians date other comedians? How does it feel when you do really well, when you kill on stage? How does that feel? And is that akin to a religious experience? Is doing comedy the same thing as acting in a, in a comedy? Are they the same thing? What are the, what are the, so we, so we asked all these wonderful questions and got all this great footage and then we cut it together. We got it an introduction to the film by Stephen Colbert, who was doing Strangers with Candy in the same offices that we were editing at the time, our film. So he came in and he introduces the movie. And then I couldn't get it. I couldn't get in for a meeting anywhere. I couldn't, because it was, uh, nobody was- No one knew them, but yeah, but now- Janine Garofalo was the only person that anybody knew. And so I couldn't get a single meeting. Nobody cared. I, I couldn't, I got into the Just for Last Film Festival, but Nobody cared. Nobody came to watch it. I mean, it just, it died a sad, slow death under, uh, it was so sad. It was so heartbreaking. And I put all the stuff, the production binder, all the releases, all the tape, all the footage into boxes under my ping pong table. And it sat there for 20 years. And I cut the film. I mean, the film is fully cut with, with original music that I, you know, had this guy this really talented guy um, composed the music and I had title sequences and nobody ever saw it. So fast forward two winters ago, I pulled it out. I showed it to some friends. I said, do you think there's, should I keep working on this? Should I keep trying to 
make something happen with this. And they, their mouths were open. <laughs> they were like, what, what all these people? I said, yeah. So I reached out. I, I was able to get in contact with David Wayne who put me in touch with Matt Walsh. So now the three of us are back at it, trying to find a home for this thing to get it out in the world. And I can't tell you how many people have turned us down. I mean, Netflix and HBO and trying to think of all the people that have turned us down. Anyway, it's been a lot of no thank you. Very polite no thank yous. I'm like, what is the, what is going on? It's going to happen. It has to. I mean, each of these comics has their own fan base. I mean, it's the, the possibilities. I mean, you know, one of them, just one of them has, I mean, Joe Latrulio from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you know, and Todd Berry, and I don't know what to tell you. It's it's a little confusing to me why people haven't jumped on it, but we're still working on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's going to emerge. It's too good I hope of, so. If we talk about serendipity, this is the ultimate serendipity this story. This is the something, ultimate serendipity. Something will happen. Maybe, maybe somehow we need to combine our networks and have a think about who we know. You know what I want to do and what we've been pitching to people is to different networks is we want to go back and invite everybody back. Mm. So we want to film one more, one more chunk of footage that we can intercut worth of of a bunch of people now, like have a reunion, invite all 100 acts. That would be great. Back to the UCB theater. What's What's her 45 seconds now? Well, we want to, well, we can do that, but also we want them to see the film. Most yeah. people never saw the film. So invite them back to the UCB theater in, in Los Angeles. Let them see the movie, interview them. Where are you now? Are you happy with your decision? Did you quit comedy? Why did you quit? Is it, is it good that you quit? Do you miss it? Did you stay in comedy, but are you behind the camera? Did you stay in mm-hmm. and are you famous now? Are you working like how does everybody feel 22 years later there's got to be a brand out there that would be prepared to sponsor that because that's just would be fantastic one would think if you like the show please subscribe and ideally give us a five star rating and a review because it helps more people find us just go to iTunes Spotify or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe this show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller but for now be curious be creative and seek out serendipity see you next time we